Well, good morning, Chapel family. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Titus. We're in, um, in the midst of a study in this little book, but it is a, uh, we're finding it, it's got an awful lot to say to us today. A guy went to see a psychiatrist. Every time he would see some coins, you know, a penny, a nickel, a quarter, he'd have a panic attack. And so he went to the, to see this psychiatrist and told the guy his problem and the, the doctor listened, he thought for a while and he said, I understand your problem. You're afraid of change. One thing is certain, the world around us changes, always has, but probably never more rapidly than it has in the last two centuries. And there have always been calls for the church to change, to be more relevant to its surrounding culture, but again, I think never more so than in recent decades. Indeed, for all of us with the few miles on our odometers, we have seen myriads of changes take place in most churches in the last few decades. Some of them perhaps not so good, many of them quite good. But the bottom line factor that should shape the church is not culture, but rather it should be the Word of God. And whatever it is that we do as a church, whatever it is that we don't do as a church, it must pass the test of the Scriptures. It must be prescribed by the Scriptures or compatible with the Scriptures and must certainly not be in contradiction with them. The mission of the church, as we have noted today and as we're focused on this month, the mission of the church is to take the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a world that does not know Him. But we do well to note the history of that process, or in history, I should say, that in the course of carrying out that process, there's a dangerous tendency that is within us to import the standards and the values of the world into the church and into our lives as believers. That is not an excuse to go wall ourselves off and become little monasteries, you know, and, and our little refuge, and here we are, and we're just going to hunker down until Jesus comes. That's not at all. We're called to go out and we're called to, to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Young Pastor Titus has been left on the island of Crete, left there by the Apostle Paul to finish the work that was begun of establishing churches on this island. And Titus's ministry or his job is to finish building up these fledgling churches to maturity so that they can survive and even thrive in the midst of Cretan culture. Cretan culture was famous, it was notorious for violence, piracy, theft, 
dishonesty, lying, immorality, drunkenness, and greed. In other words, not a lot different than 21st century America. For Titus and for these young churches, there was for them as there is for us today, there was certainly pressure for them to conform to the culture around them on Crete. We've seen that the first key in producing these thriving churches was in that environment was building godly leaders, godly elders. The second key, as we saw last week, was holding tightly to truth through sound teaching from these leaders, these elders, who also were to confront false teaching. Today as we come to chapter 2, as we begin this chapter, we're going to see the, uh, the third key, which is building godly people. In the first part of this chapter, the Apostle Paul addresses five different groups of people. This morning we're going to look at the first four of those five groups of people. And next week we'll look at the fifth group. The the first four are older men and older women and then young women and young men. And and then the fifth group is slaves. We're going to look at them next week. Today we're going to look at these first four. It's in the first eight verses of this chapter. And so would you follow along with me as I read from the Word of God? But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Four groups and about 21 different instructions. There's simply no time this morning to look in depth at all of these instructions for each group. It's a wonderful study, a marvelous study, but it'll take more time than we have. So I encourage you, in fact, I challenge you to go home this afternoon to take some time this week to read through these eight verses, to study, to meditate, to see what it is that God has to say to you, especially to you in your particular group wherever you fall. But this morning, in the brief time we have, I want to focus our attention on seven significant observations from this text. I think these these are critical things for us today as we also seek to survive and thrive in the midst of a pagan culture. Verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
But as for you, it's a word, as he begins this, he's starting in contrast to what he was just talking about. At the end of the chapter before, we saw he was been, he'd been dealing with these false teachers. These false teachers who were duplicious. They, what they, what they said was not, didn't go along with how they lived. They professed to be believers and be very spiritual and be very godly, but the way they lived was not that case at all. They, what they, the way they lived showed what they really were. They weren't believers and they weren't godly. And he says, in contrast to them, you, Titus, need to be different. And what you need to teach is what accords, in other words, what accompanies, what should go along with, what is compatible with sound doctrine or sound teaching. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. What it is that goes along with, that accompanies, that, it, that uh, uh, is consistent with sound teaching is sound living. Titus is to teach what it is to live godly. Most of us, most of what follows, I should say, in this little letter is exactly a description of what godly living looks like. It's the core message, the core focus of this passage. Believers, you and I as believers are to live out our faith, to live our faith consistently with the truth of God's Word. And that truth of God's Word will likely clash with culture and will very likely also clash with our natural tendencies. In case you haven't noticed, our natural tendencies are often quite different than what God calls for us to do. He calls for us to be patient and we are impatient. (laughs) He calls for us to be people of integrity and of truth and we are tempted to shade the truth when it suits us. And on and on. You know that. But godly people aren't just people who believe right things. Godly people flesh out the truth in real life. A real faith that believes God's truth produces a life that matches that truth. The second thing that, second observation I have from this text isn't really clear in most of the English translations that we have. But these four groups of people, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, are all tied together in His instructions to them. There is a single word that is shows up in all of them in the Greek. And it's in different forms, and so it doesn't always show up the same in English. But the word in in English, excuse me, in Greek is sophron. It, it is often translated self-controlled or sober or sensible. Literally, the word means clear thinking, sound mind. In other words, it is a mind that is alert and it's in control. Sober thinking. And so it sometimes is translated self-controlled, but it's also translated sound thinking because it's, it's clear thinking. Those two things go together. Your mind is working on all cylinders and your life is engaged with your mind. Not like, you know, most of us are 
acquainted with that thinking of, of how our, the tongue often speaks before the mind is engaged. And he's saying that that's inappropriate in our speech and it's inappropriate in our living. Our mind needs to control how we live and our mind needs to be controlled and feeding on the Word of God. A man went to see a psychiatrist. Not the same guy I talked about before. Different psychiatrist, different guy. Goes there, I'm just on a psychiatrist kick today. The guy was dressed up like Napoleon. He had the whole get up on with the hat and, you know, his hand like this. And he comes in and uh, the doctor, you know, sees him and goes, well, you know, what's your name? He says, Napoleon, obviously. Um, you know, what's your problem? Well, there really isn't one. I'm famous. I'm rich. I rule most of the world, control a powerful army. The doctor said, then why are you here? Well, the problem is my wife. She thinks that she's Mrs. Bob Smith. (laughs) See, when our thinking is messed up, we so often think the problem is out there and it's someone else, it's something else, and it's not us. Apostle Paul says we need sound thinking and we need to understand that it's so easy for our thinking to become distorted, for our thinking to get fuzzy. As we live in this world, as we live in a world surrounded by folks who don't know Christ, who aren't following Him, as we are bombarded constantly by media that is giving a different message, we tend to find ourselves quite easily beginning to think and to adopt thinking of a godless society. The attitudes, the philosophies, the whims of our cultures start to infect and affect us. We end up becoming conformed to the pattern of the world. We read earlier uh, from Romans chapter 12 where it, it says, hey, stop, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. It has to tell us that because there's a tendency for us to, to drift that way and to move that way. Our thinking becomes cloudy. We have to resist that. And the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here because our own impulses, our own desires, our our own feelings are equally contrary to God's Word, as I was saying a moment ago. And, and they start to cloud our clear thinking. Like the country western singer who sang, you know, I knew what I was feeling, but what was I thinking? And... Acting on our feelings often gets us into trouble. On the other hand, clear godly thinking will help us to live with self-restraint, with self-control, because clear godly thinking sees the big picture. So Paul knows if you and I are going to survive and thrive as believers in a pagan culture, we need desperately to have an alert mind that thinks clearly that knows the Word of God and understands, therefore, the the world through God's perspective and our mind sees and evaluates the world, everything in the world through the lens of God's truth. 
so we are called to live godly. We are called to think godly. The third observation I had as I was going over this passage this week, and it's something I really would rather not address at all, but I feel because of the culture that we are in, I simply have to mention it. Central to this text, as we look here, Paul begins in verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded in verse 3, older women and, and down in verse 4, the young women in verse and verse 6, the younger men. Central to this text is that the Apostle Paul addresses men and women separately. And there is absolutely no ambiguity here in this text or anywhere in Scripture, nor any apology here, nor anywhere in Scripture for about who the men are and who the women are. It's considered self-evident. I feel the need to say, though, that gender is a biological reality that we are born with. It is not an identity choice. That is not a hate statement. It is simply a statement of reality. But we are in a culture that has so much confusion in our day over what really should be an obvious thing. But I have to say again, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must not, we really do not even have the option to base our understanding of the world and of life upon culture or upon popular thought or even upon our own preferences. We have to base our understanding of life and our philosophy of life Upon the Word of God. Whatever God says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Scripture says that God created mankind. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Gender identity is established by God. He created mankind. He created the genders of men and women. And He created each of us as we were born into this world. He has given us His assignments, as it were, of gender at birth. And there is purpose in that. There is value in that. There is dignity in that. Now, I suppose that any of us at any time could question God's choice. Like we might at various times any physical ability or disability or attribute or any circumstance that we were born with in our case. Probably all of us have wondered why we had the parents we had or the siblings we have or why were we born here or why were we born this way. You know, you might be six foot two and wonder why you weren't you know, five foot two. You might be five foot two and wonder why you weren't six foot two. You just wonder why you weren't born the perfect height of five foot nine inches like me. But rather than deny what we are, we do well to accept and to embrace it and to seek to honor God with the person that He has made us to be. See, underlying the whole 
issue today in our culture is the fact that they do not believe that God is either exists or that He is sovereign and that He is good. That was the first lie that was perpetrated on the human race, that God is not good. Brothers and sisters, the Scripture is full from cover to cover that yes, He is. And if we believe that, then we accept what God has given to us and we seek to glorify Him in it. Walter Heyer is a man who underwent gender reassignment surgery, etc., with all the accompanying everything else, to become a woman. In his book, Trading My Sorrows, he wrote this. It was becoming clear that the surgery is not a sex or gender change at all, but a means to live out a masquerade. He goes on to say a key element to healing is working through the delusion that changing genders is possible. It gets much easier to recover when you acknowledge that surgery cannot perform a gender change. Nothing can. You are as God made you to be. Live it, love it, and celebrate it. Thankfully, Walter has now found forgiveness and healing and true change in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We must not have animosity and hatred for folks who are caught in confusion, for folks who are caught in sin, for folks who are caught up in in. You know, they're genuinely hurting folks in this world. What they need is Jesus Christ. What they also need from us is honesty and an honest presentation of what God has said about who we are, who He is, and our need for Him. Fourthly, As I look in this text, the fourth observation I see here is that along with that, men and women are distinctively different. There are distinctive instructions here for men versus women because God has created us differently as men and women. And along with that, there are the accompanying distinctives that we have in our strengths as men and our strengths as women and in our weaknesses as men and our weaknesses as women and how we interact differently with one another and with the world as a whole. We are different as men and women. And God has given distinctive roles to men and to women in the midst of our differences Distinctive roles for how we relate to one another within the family and within the church. And again, this is at tremendous odds with our culture. It flies in the face of our culture, which seems to be intent on trying to wipe out and obliterate distinctions between men and women, which I think is an exercise in futility, but that's... It seems obvious to me, but it doesn't seem obvious to the rest of the world. And again, 
we must base our understanding of the world and the Scriptures, not on what people think. Scripture is clear that men and women are both created in the image of God. We read a minute ago, Genesis 1.27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them rule or have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Men and women are both created in the image of God. Men and women are co-rulers over creation. That verse also tells us. We go over the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and, and we see that men and women are equal in worth and standing before God. There is neither Jew or Greek or, or there is neither slave or free. There is no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We can go to many other passages in Scripture to show that men and women before God have equal standing, equally value, equal in worth, equally in the image of God. But there is distinction. Equality does not mean identical. Equality does not mean interchangeable. There is distinction. There is difference. And we should celebrate it. Vive la difference. However they say it in French. I'm not French. In French, I just know they leave out all kinds of letters that you should read. <laughs> There's probably one syllable. V or something in French. Sorry. No, no offense to you French people. I speak Spanish where you say every letter that's there. It makes sense. We celebrate the differences that God made. Someone once well said, if both of us are the same, one of us is unnecessary. <laughs> Love that. The fifth observation is that we are to invest in the next generation. He speaks specifically here to the older men and the older women and who those are, I think, he doesn't specifically say, and so most of us would just like to say, well, I'm the younger person. That starts like at 90 or something. But um, probably the older starts at, uh, it's, it's around 60. My best guess from Scripture and from what I read from commentators, probably around 60 or in our way of thinking, probably empty nesters and on are those older folks. He says, older men, don't be grumpy old guys. But verse 2, he says, be dignified, worthy of respect. Blaze a trail that is worthy of others to follow in our footsteps. The first thing that we're to do in investing in the next generation is the examples. He says to these older men, there'd be examples in sound or settled faith, strong love for God that, and for others, and an endurance that finishes well, following Jesus well all the way to the end. Similarly, older women in verse 3, it says they're told here to be reverent in the way they live. Literally, it means to live like a holy person. In other words, older men and older women should be folks that younger folks can look up to by the example we set. Older men, this is the bar for us. It's not the time to just slack off, but as we get older, it's the time to step up our game because we should expect that everyone's looking to us to see what does a godly man look like? Ladies, what does a godly woman look like? 
Younger folks, that should be your aim is to grow into that kind of an older person. The second thing besides setting the example is there should be an active commitment to being personal trainers. Older, He's speaking to the older women, verse 3. At the end of verse 3, they teach what is good and to train the younger women. Speaking specifically to the older women, and I think it's they're very practically here, he's, he's talking to young Pastor Titus. It would be totally inappropriate for young Pastor Titus to be doing women's ministry among young women. So he's saying, older women, you need to take care of that. Help out Pastor Titus here. I think that the whole fact of older people investing in younger people and mentoring them is, is a entirely valuable and appropriate and needed for both men and women. I think that's the call in this text for us older folks not to just as we get older and we find that you know the kids have left the house and the schedule kind of settles down a little bit and, and you start to slack off at work or retire at work, you know, you cut back or, or retire completely from work. Don't be those folks who go off and retire to the golf course or the lake or the bingo hall. There to spend your days indulging yourself in whatever it is that you want to do. Rather, it's being saying that, that as, as the responsibilities and the demands of, of young family and the demands of work and other things change, we need to reinvent ourselves and reinvest ourselves for whatever our remaining days are, that we invest in those who are younger to intentionally build relationships, intentionally engage, intentionally spend time, intentionally talk in order to encourage and to train and equip younger folks to live godly lives for Christ. Really, it's for all of us, I think, to be doing whatever age we are with those who are younger, but especially us older folks. And I am now in that age group of the older folks. The sixth observation, and it's not implicit in the text, but I believe it's implied here. Following up on that, is it's this. A, a wise young person will value the older folks. A wise young person will seek out older, godly, gray-headed friends. You see, young folks don't miss this. There are lessons that can only be learned through time. There are perspectives that are only learned by time, experience. You learn how to win races by going and studying and emulating the people who finish races well, not by looking at the example of folks who are ahead ten yards out of the starting gate. Young people, life is a marathon and you only get one shot at it. Look and learn from those who are running well as they finish the race. I think it's a great tragedy that so many modern churches are polarized by age. So you have these churches all have old congregations and these churches all have young congregations and there's these churches 
who tried to fix it by we're going to have two services. We're going to have contemporary and traditional and then we got a congregation of old people and a congregation of young people and they meet in the same building at different times and they never meet each other. I applaud a little church in Camdenton we visited while we were there uh, about a month or two ago because intentionally they realized this is where we are. We're a church with two congregations. We got old and young and they never meet. And that is not biblical and it's not right. And they said, we're changing that. (laughs) And they moved their services together and they said, you guys need each other. Because we do, we need each other. Young people, you need us old folks. And old folks, we need you young folks. Lastly, if I haven't stirred up enough trouble, verses 4 and 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Which is actually interesting as I just read it just then. Try going on the street corner in downtown St. Louis and read these words out loud. There will be lots of reviling going on. (laughs) They will probably get anger or jeers, scorn. But it's interesting, he says, when we don't do this, the world mocks. Don't miss that. The instructions are pretty clear. Young wives and moms are to love their husbands and children and make their home a priority. Again, you don't need Greek and you don't need a doctorate in theology to understand that's what it says. Women have been created by God to be nurturers in ways that we men simply aren't. I've built a house. And over the years, I've done most every job and chore that is needed in a household. But ask my kids and they'll be sure to tell you that It's Janet, my wife, with her nurturing and loving and feminine touch that makes our house a home. Women are indispensable in a home and their their role is significantly needed. It doesn't say here that women cannot or should not ever work outside the home. You want to do a study, go to Proverbs chapter 31, the model of a virtuous woman that's there, and you will see she's got business ventures, she's got financial dealings, and she has ministries going on outside the home. It's not saying women can't work outside the home. And this doesn't give men a pass to be absent or lazy or uninvolved at home. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Men are called to be loving and self-sacrificing leaders in the home. Ephesians chapter 6, men are called, fathers are called to be, to be active and to be proactive, to be leading in the raising, the training of our children. We're not to leave that to the women. But many of the prevalent ills, the prevalent problems in our culture, even folks who aren't believers look and say many of the problems in our culture arise from neglect in the home. As believers who are aiming to thrive in a 
pagan culture, we need women who answer God's countercultural call and make homemaking a priority. And that is a tough job. Older ladies, the young ladies, need your encouragement. They need your support. They need your your help. They need your instruction. Husbands, your wives, need your encouragement. They need your your partnership. They need your help in this. But the role of a mother and a wife is a great calling of the highest order. It provides incalculable benefit. And in the church, it deserves our encouragement and our honor. We need to value not only old people, we need to value homemakers. Some pretty countercultural observations. There's a lot of controversial stuff in these few verses. It's radical stuff today, but it was just as radical on first century Crete when Titus and these early churches read these words from Paul. They're radical and cross-cultural. But it really shouldn't be surprising because the Christian life has always been unapologetically counter-cultural. As we'll see in the next two lessons, one reason is that because the Christian life is not about me. It's about living for Jesus, not living for me. And that's radical. And it's not about now. Our hope is in heaven, not here on earth. Not the stuff here. The payoff we're looking for is eternal. And that's radical. Neither of those thoughts is normal in our culture. It's not about me and it's not about now. But that's the way we're called to live. God's truth with clear thinking lived out in real life. Father, we need these words. They're not pleasant ones to deal with, especially as we look in the mirror and we realize that we have such a tendency to be shaped and molded and colored by the the culture around us. And we find ourselves saying we believe Your Word, but thinking like the culture, and then we start living like the culture. Sometimes Christians even do it deliberately, thinking the Gospel will get a better hearing. But what he just said is when we do that, ultimately what happens is the unbelievers mock and scorn because they know that we're being duplicitous. God, deliver us from that. Keep us anchored firmly in Your truth and then keep our minds thinking clearly so that we take that truth and we apply it and live it out, flesh it out in our lives day by day. Ultimately, so that the world will give glory to Jesus and they will see the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we desire. And that's what we ask, Lord, you do in us. In Jesus' name, amen.